This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited. We've got a good pal, our buddy, Donna Andrews, coming on the show. And we're going to talk to uh, Donna a little bit about uh, her latest in the uh, Make Langslow mystery series, uh, Birders She Wrote. Love the titles. Always love the titles. So uh, we'll talk to Donna a little bit about the latest book, uh, what's coming up next. And then, uh, of course, we'll pick her brain a little bit about how she became such a fantastic writer of these mystery novels and was it take for everyone to learn uh, how to be uh, even a fraction of uh, good as uh, Donna does it. So uh, it's going to be a great show. We're looking forward to it. Everybody uh, just hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Join us now is New York Times bestselling author of Roundup of the Peacocks and a whole host of other bestselling books. Of course, we're talking about our good friend Donna Andrews. Donna, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's always exciting to have, and I love when the books come across because obviously everyone loves the uh, the mystery series, the Meg Glanslow mystery series, and of course the titles. I always had to ask you about how those titles came about, and the latest is the uh, title is Birder She Wrote. I love it. I love it. So, uh, Donis, tell us a little bit about the latest mystery. What can we expect in uh, the uh, everything going on with Meg and the gang? Yeah, well, in this book, this book is a summer book. So Meg is, as the book begins, she thinks she's going to have a little bit of hammock time, you know, a little time to relax. Little does she know that her father wants her to help install a new batch of bees in his beehive. She has, in addition to being a blacksmith, she has a part-time job as the mayor's, she calls it the mayor's special assistance in charge of nuts and nuisances. Special projects is the <laughs> official title, but whenever there's a problem, the mayor sends her out to deal with it, and they've got some neighbors that are feuding. And her grandmother is going to take her out. A couple of a couple of books ago, I uh, added some Pomeranians to the the cast of characters, the animal cast of characters. One of my one of my canine nieces is half Pomeranian, and I think they're they're just adorable. Yes. Her cousin, the uh, the county forensic guy, the CSI guy, he's teaching the dogs to do scent work. I mean, just because they're not bloodhounds doesn't mean they can't do it. I actually know someone who knows a dachshund that does search and rescue stuff. But the Pomeranians are, are being taught search and rescue or cadaver dog work. And one of the things that cadaver dogs can actually do that I learned about while researching this, they can find graves, not just fresh dead bodies. They can go out and find a graveyard that's uh, a grave that's 10 years old or 10 centuries old. A lot of historians and archaeologists are using cadaver dogs to help locate graveyards, particularly graveyards that wouldn't be marked, like 
indigenous graveyards or slave graveyards. So Meg's grandmother and the deacon of the local church, they're looking for a graveyard that was associated with the old version of the church. And they're out in the woods looking for this graveyard. And of course, they find a fresh body, much too fresh. Uh, and that kicks off the mystery because the body is not there by accident. He's been murdered. So I have a lot of fun with that. There are bees and and the bird of the, the book is hummingbirds. Because oh. we're working on the pollinators here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the book resonates in so many fashions. And, and I love the fact that every time uh, I pick up one of your books and I find Meg, Meg just having a nice casual day. She's trying a new hobby or she's got a new job. She's got something simple going on. And then, bam, no, not so fast. We got a dead body or something going on. <laughs> yeah, I, you know who I kind of feel sorry for in addition to Meg? The chief of police, Chief Henry Burke. He spent a very good career. Uh, I, in the backstory, he was a homicide detective in Baltimore. So he knows homicides. He's a seasoned police officer. But this was supposed to be his retirement career, being the police chief of this sleepy little small town. I guess he hasn't figured out yet that there's a mystery writer working his small town. <laughs> so he's running across not as many bodies as he used to, but more than he expected in his peaceful retirement second job. So, yeah. Absolutely, and I love how you you blend all the 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 uh, the different characters, the different animals in the, in the book, and and as I mentioned, so many of them resonate. Of course, Pomeranians first resonate. I will tell you a real life uh, quick story about me. When I was in college, uh, dating uh, my now wife, she had always wanted a Pomeranian. And uh, at the time, I'd lived in dorms for a while. Then I lived in a fraternity house. And then I finally got my bachelor pad, my single pad my, to finish out my college days. It was a real terrible place, but I could afford it. And the very next day, we just happened to go out on the town, just hitting some shops, killing some times. We went to the pet store as always. And being the guy, I turned the corner and said, hey, isn't this a Pomeranian? <laughs> not knowing yes yes yeah so i i should have known you know guys always think like three days too late and <laughs> next thing i know i've got a pomeranian and all the gear in my bachelor pad so i got to enjoy my little my little place uh in college by myself for uh, one night and that was it <laughs> and they're they're delightfully feisty little dogs maple the the half pomeranian she is afraid of nothing she chased two deer out of the yard yesterday when she was visiting me. She's my she's my canine niece. I don't actually have pets. I was thinking of getting a dog, and now I realize that Maple would get so jealous if I showed up with another dog. She would not be happy. So I don't think we're yeah. getting a dog anytime soon. Yeah, you'd have to get her approval ahead of time. I've, I learned that a long time ago. Get the stamp of the approval of the smallest dog, and then maybe you've got a half a chance. That's that's <laughs> my rule of thumb. She's possessive, yeah. <laughs> For sure. So it's interesting, you know, I find that these stories are always, always fantastic and, and trying to dig into, uh, I don't want to give away the whole book, but digging into the mystery itself. And as I mentioned before, this sort of just stumbling upon these things, because you wouldn't expect in small town America, where Meg and the gang live, that there would be that much excitement, let alone a, uh, a murder mystery to solve. Yeah, In the mystery world, we call it the Cabot Cove syndrome. After Jessica Fletcher's town, Mm -hmm. And the fact that they never figured out everywhere Jessica goes, there's a dead body. They never figured out that she's the serial killer, Jessica Fletcher in Murder, yes. She Wrote. Yes, I mean, absolutely. You know, no, it's one of those things about which I practice willing suspension of disbelief. That at some point, someone 
maybe the FBI would be saying, wait a minute, what is the murder rate doing spiking in this tiny little town? Let's go figure this out. But the fact that, yes, we had a murder last year and we're having another murder this year, and it doesn't happen that often in a small town, that's one of the things we kind of expect the, the reader to just, just accept. Along with the fact that I'm not killing off Spike, the small evil one. Uh, this is the dog that has been in the series since it began. Over 20 years ago, I'm sorry, it's completely implausible that Spike is still alive. I'm not killing him off. I'm not getting rid of Meg's grandfather either. I'm, I'm doing what's called Peter Panning them. So they just stay around. If Yeah, if you need a logical explanation, there's actually vampirism rampant in Carefilly and Spike was bitten. He's never going away. <laughs> I love it. I love the justification. Because you know, as a successful author, you know, a writer of the mystery series, you can't kill off the fan favorites. You can't kill off the ones that the people have come to expect to be there. They want to see the new characters. They want to see the new animals and new people come in, etc. But uh, there are certain characters that it, uh, if you're very smart, you won't kill them off. Or if you do, then in the hullabaloo comes about, then you mysteriously bring them back to life somehow. Yeah, I, I did a, a survey, a reader survey. It was years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And I, I you know, not including Meg, because if, if she's not your favorite, I don't want to hear about it. But apart from Meg, who's your favorite character in the series? And ironically, Meg's dad came in first, followed by Spike, the small evil one. Uh, her grandfather hadn't been in the series that long. I think he would have rated higher. Uh, grandfather's a lot of fun to work with because uh, he's, he's an imminent... He's an environmentalist, a zoologist. He's always going out and rescuing endangered species or taking down corporate polluters or he breaks up dogfight rings, any kind of harm to animals he's out there pitching, which makes him a really good person to have around. For one thing, he kicks off some of the plots. And for another thing, it just gives me a wonderful way to bring more animals in. He runs a small private zoo, and whenever things get quiet, we take people out to the zoo and... Yeah, I actually had a lot of fun in one of the books where I had a chase scene going through the zoo and, and ending up in the habitat of a, not of a particularly mild-mannered animal. So that was kind of fun. But yeah, he's, a great, he's great for bringing in the, uh, the obscure animals. In this book, he's mostly working, they're mostly, work, mostly working with the, uh, the bees and the hummingbirds. And if you've ever been in a place where brand new McMansions with full of city people are juxtaposed with working farms and the city people haven't figured out that that fresh air they're so excited about sometimes smells like manure and that peace and quiet they get in the country is going to be interrupted at dawn by the roosters at the nearby chicken farm and that view that that beautiful pastoral view might contain a pig wallow so a lot of the book arises from the conflict between the working farmers of Carefilly County and and a bunch of people who are not from around here, as we say, source of tension and one of the possible motives for the murder. Absolutely. Without giving it away there. It's so true to life, though. I mean, I, I find that. I mean, we were uh, at one point we had a, uh, a home here in the city, not in a big city, but, you know, in one of the burbs living in one of the uh, suburbias. And then uh, up the road a ways, about an hour away, we had a nice little mountain home. And the the scenery, the everything was totally different. The pace, everything was uh, totally different. One was faster paced, one was slower. One had more noise, one didn't. But there was always noise or things going on in each place. 
So it's just like you said, you know, do you substitute the kids playing and the cars going by with the uh, rooster crowing and the shotguns blaring and the uh, the farmer doing his thing at the crack of dawn, which I'm not a crack of dawn person. I will say that for sure. Dawn is um, so- crack around here. Dawn <laughs> Hey, noon is allowed to crack. Dawn is not allowed to crack at my house. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I would make that's, a terrible farmer. That's it. Yeah, I would too. I would too, for sure. Talking about the animals and coming into right in each of these, each of the mysteries, how do you determine what route you're going to take with it? I mean, is it a matter of you have an idea of what the next thing should be and the characters and the animals that should be part of it? Or is there something that catches your fancy? Maybe it's part of a, a news story that's going on and, and you pull that's interesting to you. How do you sort of decipher all that and decide, okay, in this book, I think it should be focused with some, uh, you know, some hummingbirds, some bees, but we also have a couple of new characters, et cetera. It varies. It varies from book to book. I mean, sometimes I come up with an idea that I really want to do, and I shoot it to my editor and see if he likes it. And sometimes it, it grows naturally out of what happened in a. There can be story arcs, like in one book, Meg is pregnant, so you know she's going to have small people in the next book. The most basic thing is that I come up with a situation that interests me, a situation that could give rise to humor and homicide. One of the things that I've discovered is that people doing something that they're passionate about that looks a little strange to the outside world is a really great way to start off a book for me. You know, I've had a book with uh, Revolutionary War reenactors and rose growers and another book took place on a cruise. I look at a situation where there's people who are thrown together in some kind of activity that funny things will happen, but there's going to be tension between some of the people. For example, for the the book that comes out after Murder, She Wrote, which will be called Let It Crow, Let It Crow, Let It Crow. <laughs> I should probably say, Let It Crow, Let It Crow. Uh, I wanted it all three times to make it clear it was there was echoing the Christmas Carol. It's a Christmas book. Readers have always been suggesting, why don't you have Meg compete in Forged in Fire? Which, for anyone who hasn't heard of it, it's a it's a television show. It's kind of like a, a reality TV competition show where they get four bladesmiths, guys who make swords, and they have them compete. You know, whoever does the best sword wins. Well, I thought people kept saying, why doesn't Meg do that? Because Meg is too smart to do something like that. <laughs> Meg does not see this as something that would be fun to do. But readers kept suggesting it, and it was kind of a natural fix. But suddenly I realized, okay, Meg doesn't want to do it. She would normally, you know, she would normally refuse. But what if they, someone, a friend of hers, needs her to pitch in because otherwise the project is going to fall apart? So in Let It Crow times three, one of Meg's blacksmith friends is organizing a, uh, it's kind of like a wannabe forged in fire called Blades of Glory. And it's, it's a sword making competition. And they ask Meg and she says no. She says no repeatedly, but the night before the contest is supposed to begin, her blacksmithing mentor, who is a competitor, is mugged and they break his arm. And they realize they don't have six blacksmiths to compete in this show. And unfortunately, Meg is about to say sorry, but she finds out that Falk has invested money in this show. He's lent the organizer money, and he's going to be in a serious financial pickle if the show doesn't go on. 
So under duress to help her friend, Meg said, okay, I'll do it. And I want to enjoy it. <laughs> and, and it was a lot of fun because if you can imagine, it's a show about blacksmiths. And there are women competitors in Forged and Fire, but not right. a whole lot. And so I figured it'll be Meg with five big, burly, bearded, tattooed guys. And, and she will stand out in the crowd. So that was kind of fun because I, I figured out a scenario that I could do something that the fans had been asking for. And my editor loves blacksmithing. He oh, always boy. likes it when I could put more blacksmithing in the book. And so I think, okay, what can I do to up the fun quotient? And I realized, oh, what if the contest is taking place out at Ragnar's farm? Ragnar is a retired heavy metal drummer who made a fortune in, from his music and is now converting a a fancy estate outside of the town into basically a gothic castle complete with turrets and a, a, a moat and it's kind of fun so that that'll be fun we'll, we'll set the contest there so I, I i get enough elements and shake them up in a bag until i realize i've got enough stuff to be have fun with to make people laugh but also there's tension i mean tension and people with secrets because if you, if the only person in a mystery who has a guilty secret that they're trying to protect is the actual killer, you've probably got a short story rather than a book. A lot of times the fun is not, not just finding the killer, but opening up all of these boxes and revealing all the secrets. I mean, someone can be trying to hide the fact that he's a killer. Someone else is trying to hide the fact that she's wearing a corset. To keep her stomach in and someone right. else might be high might be hiding the fact that he's been diagnosed with a serious disease and doesn't want people to worry about him and someone else might be hiding the fact that he's a closet watcher of true crime documentaries and he doesn't want to admit it everyone has secrets and the fun is you, you get a bunch of people who have secrets that they're willing to lie to the police about and then you've got enough plot to keep the reader amused so yeah i I look for a situation that, with both humor and homicide. I look for more than one guilty person, even though there's only one murderer, more than one guilty person. And then I turn Meg and her family and friends, including all the, uh, all the livestock, loose. Meg's home menagerie, last time I checked, includes two flocks of two different breeds of chickens, two feral barn cats, five llamas, uh, four resident dogs, Five dogs that often come for the, several of the dogs, the, the seven Pomeranian puppies were all adopted locally. And when their owners don't want them to be left alone at home, they drop them off at Meg's house to play with the other dogs. So at any given moment, Meg is surrounded by critters. There's also her grandfather's zoo. People keep saying, you should do a map of the zoo and a map of the town. If I mapped it out, then I can't add something that I want. If I'd mapped out the town the first time I went to the fictitious Virginia town of Carefilly, I wouldn't have put a zoo in there. But later on, I said, oh, there's a private zoo. Yeah. Which Meg's grandfather bought at the end of one of the books. So I'm always looking for a way to add in more more fun bits. So Yeah. And I, and I love the fact that, you know, you obviously the huge fan base that you have gives you ideas, you know, things that they beat the drum on that they want to see, but also you put, put out the uh, request, you know, Hey, what do you guys want to see? What do you want to hear? Who, who should we keep around? Who should we kill off? These type of things. I'm sure they're not bashful about any of that. And you tie it all together in a nice little uh, tidy bow with a fun little title to the book, like Birder She Wrote. And sometimes the title comes first and I invent a plot to go with the title. 
And sometimes we have to work like dogs, me and my editor and other brains at, at the publishing house. Sometimes I remember when I was, I was doing the book that ended up being called Die Like an Eagle. I wanted to call it either Eagle Rights or Eagle Opportunity, but neither of those sounded murdery enough. So we ended up with Die Like an Eagle, which I right. die like an eagle. Yeah, absolutely. That one too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to take a, a quick break. We'll come back right after these commercials. Um, we'll continue our conversation with a fantastic friend and author, Donna Andrews, and talk to her a little bit more about our, her writing styles and uh, how she ties it all together in a bow, like I mentioned before. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Continue our conversation with uh, New York Times bestselling author Donna Andrews. Donna, when I get a copy of, of the book, and I love so many things about it, and even though we have some of the main characters in here uh, that we come to know and love, like Meg and the gang, there's always some new twist to it. The writing of all this, I know that uh, you put out at least a couple of books a year. Is that correct? They usually have me on a two-book-a-year schedule. They've decided my books are great for summer, a good beach read. So I, it usually comes out in July and August. And then uh, uh, for if you're writing in the lighter end of the, of the genre, Christmas mysteries are a big draw. So they usually try to have me do a Christmas book. Not every year over the course of my publishing life, but most years recently. So um, yeah, I mean, it's getting harder to find Christmas titles, but we're still working on it. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are plenty out there. Pull out your old uh, Bing Crosby albums and things of this sort. Maybe you'll hear some tunes there that'll that'll pull it in together. But putting together the books, I mean, it, just in this series, the May uh, Lancelot series, uh, this is, what, the 33rd going on the 34th book yes. in just this series alone. It always fascinates me it, how you keep... Not only the momentum going, I, I can understand that because you've got great characters and, and, and great mysteries to solve. There's probably a plethora of things you want to tackle. But how do you keep it on schedule? And then once you get it out there, how do you know what you're talking about next, I guess what I would say? Because I imagine you're working on the next summer book by now. Yeah, I'm over halfway through the next summer book, which will be called Between a Flock and a Hard Place. <laughs> I think I just had approved in record time because I also rec I said... Can we call it all flocked up or what flock or maybe between a flock and, and they went for between a flock and a hard place. Yeah. That, yeah. It's safer mood. Safer mood. It gave me complete freedom. As long as the bird of the, of the week occurs in flocks, I could use any bird I wanted. 
I'm a bit of a planner. I, I don't outline as obsessively as I used to, but I have figured out, you know, squeezing in writing two books in a year, I have to kind of like plan ahead. So I actually, I work with a spreadsheet. I know it sounds terribly uncreative. I'm a Sagittarius with a Virgo moon. So I let my Virgo side do the organizing so my Sagittarius side can play. <laughs> so I set up a spreadsheet and I figured it out. I've got it down to an art now. I know when I need to start each book, if I'm going to finish it in time to turn it in. I like to finish the first draft about a month to six weeks before the actual day I have to turn it into my editor. And so I work back from that. And you know, I know months in advance that I need to finish my planning so I can start writing on this day. And then I work with the spreadsheet. I, I, have a, I write normally. I try to keep it so that I write Monday through Friday. I get the weekends off to rest, to research, to sponge, or if I fall behind, to catch up. I like the spreadsheet because one of the tough things about writing, you can't write a book. You can only write that portion of the book that's in front of you at that moment. I mean, it's even hard to keep a whole book in your in your mind, which is why outlining works well for me. But the great thing about having my daily quota is as long as I finish that little quota that's assigned in the spreadsheet for the day, I'm allowed to consider that day a success, no matter what else went wrong, and I'm allowed to play. Or if I'm feeling inspired, I might put some in the bank for a day when I'm not feeling inspired. But I, I just, I, when I, I, when dawn cracks or when noon cracks, more likely, I sit down at the computer, I call up my spreadsheet, and I make sure it's set for the day. I've, I've, slugged, I've slotted in my total for yesterday. I know how much I have to write today. And then I call up, you know, whatever piece I'm working on. I don't necessarily write, I don't necessarily start on page one and write through to the end. If I feel, I mean, one of the benefits of planning is that if I feel inspired to write a scene that happens late in the book because suddenly I realize how it's got to work, I can hop ahead and, and write that. As long as I just, and that's one of the things when I'm having trouble getting moving, I like, I'm not feeling inspired today, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to write. It just means getting started is going to be harder. So I will, on those days when inspiration escapes me, I try to think ahead, What's, is there a scene? Oh, I think this scene would be fun. Let's do that scene today. And, you know, I, I work on whatever scene is like, in other words, I, I figure out whatever vulnerable part, whatever part of the outline I can work on today. And I keep working until I've done X number of words. And it sounds boring and it sounds methodical and routine, but it works. Uh, it's it's the, the solid structure that you use to support your creativity is having a plan and, and having a, a routine of sorts. So, yeah. And I know that if I turn out my quota every day, and right now my quota is about, uh, my quota that for the, when it's working well, I write, 1500 words a day which is about six pages monday through friday as long as i get my six pages done i can rest and i know that i'll come out of the end of that period with a draft it may need revision and polishing and editing but i'll have a complete draft and that kind of as long as i do this tiny thing today i'm on track for the big ending that's very satisfying yeah, absolutely. And I love it. I mean, the the planning part of it is fascinating to me in the fact, because I'm not a planner. I will say that when I write, I fall back to my college days of, oh, that test is tomorrow. Maybe I should get started. Uh, <laughs> but I love the fact that, you know, you, you map it out and, and you can give yourself some leeway when you need to. And you, and, and truthfully, the, the amount of words that you write uh, on a given day, it it doesn't sound 
all that obtrusive, you know, that, oh my gosh. But if you didn't have your format, if you didn't have your spreadsheet, all of a sudden that one day slippage becomes 10 days and now you find yourself in a little bit of pickle. I had a problem that my publisher had a, a data breach uh, that they had to shut down all their automated systems last fall. And one of the things that happened was that my contract for the next batch of books was sort of in the system. And by the time they got their system online again and extracted the contract, I'm like, oh, I forgot that we moved my deadline for the Christmas book up a month. This is going to be interesting because I should have started it already. <laughs> I, swear, never, I mean, I, I had that, I've had that happen before once, uh, even worse, where for because of a lot of stuff that was going on, I did not start a book when I should have because I was doing other other life stuff that I couldn't get away with. But I just, I sort of did my own little personal NaNoWriMo and wrote 80,000 words in 36 days. <laughs> I didn't do much else. And I, I swore I will never, ever do that again. And that's when I, that's when I not only came up with a spreadsheet, but figured out and mark on my calendar when I get a new calendar for the coming year, I mark on my calendar the dates when I have to start this book and this book. It doesn't always work out the planning doesn't always work out as well as i think and at least every other book i reach a point where i look at my outline and realize that it's not exactly the words that are on the paper but the words on my outline at that stage of the plot are a fancified way of saying and then meg finds some clues at which point you know that's not enough of an outline to work from donna so then I go back and do a little bit more outlining and figure out. And it's not a big problem because a lot of times as I'm working along, I don't stick to my outline slavishly. If in writing, I think of something that's better than what was in my outline, I roll with it. And I eventually go back and figure out, okay, I'm doing this instead of that. What else do I need to change? So usually by the time I reach the, I call it the, oops, Meg, find some clues phase. Usually by that point, it's a good time to take stock and see if the direction I originally thought I was going still works, or if I thought of something better. So I recently, uh, when the girls, my canine nieces, were over here to do their spa treatment yesterday, I realized I had reached the, oops, Meg, find some clues phase. And even though they're the home groomer, you know, I have one of those mobile groomers, even though the mobile groomer is a lot less stressful than taking them in to the place with all the barking dogs, where they get so mm -hmm. terrified that they oh, can't yeah. and I feel so guilty. So I told my brother, I will give you grooming for the girls and the mobile groomer for a Christmas present. He said, okay. So I just pick up the girls, bring them over, and we hang out all day. And if they're stressed after their grooming, we have lap time. So while sitting there with my phone in one hand, petting a stressed out dog with the other, I kind of solved the, okay, let's drill down in the details of what happens in the next second half of the book, which was very satisfying because now I'm, I'm cooking along again. Yeah, but yeah, it counts. Yeah. So they end up being a great muse and you can be the great auntie. And about the time they need to go home, you can turn them back over and you got your puppy fixed for a while. Oh, yeah. I live only a couple of miles from where my brother, their, their daddy lives. He's a psychologist who sees patients. And he knows that if he's one of his patients has an emergency and he has to work in a session and he was uh, going to be home late. Can you can you go here? The girls. So I do. <laughs> yeah, because I can't imagine that having uh, uh, little gappers around when you're trying to do a serious private session, uh, those things don't blend very well. <laughs> he's got a well-soundproofed room when he's working from home, and, and he also usually does his work from the office where the, the dogs stay at home. But, there you uh, go. So, and their adventures help inspire the adventures of Spike and the Pomeranians. So they're, 
literary characters now. <laughs> Absolutely. And their cut of the royalty is just some uh, doggy biscuits and treats <laughs> and puppy rubs. That works out well. <laughs> they, they like the full moon chicken jerky. Yeah. I keep supplied with a full moon chicken jerky. They like that. Yummy. Yummy. <laughs> well, Donna, where can people find out more about uh, what's going on with you and activities, the latest books, all that good stuff? They can check out my website, DonnaAndrews.com. You can also find me on Facebook. If you Google Donna Andrews, you'll probably see me. I, I have an author page and a, and a personal page. And, and I'm, I'm usually on Facebook. If you don't like political stuff, I occasionally share that on my personal page. But the author page is mostly just news about the books. The next book will be, uh, the next book, Birder She Wrote, will be officially hit the stores on August 1st, I believe. And I'll be doing a couple of signings in the local area. I'm also going to the Boucher Condom Mystery Convention in San Diego over the Labor Day weekend. Readers who are really keen on on mysteries, if you are in the San Diego area or want to travel there, it's a fun event. Something like 2,000 people who are either writers or readers, and we have about four or five days of panels and gatherings and you know, you could probably meet your favorite mystery writer having a margarita in the bar. Absolutely. That sounds like a good plan. And you're in San Diego. So it's a win, win, win. And there's a couple of good critter places out there too with the yes. uh, zoo and everything. So that sounds like a fantastic trip. I might well, be trying Donna, to get some time. Go yeah. To zoo, yeah. You have to. You have to. It's one of my favorite places around uh, that whole uh, San Diego area and catching all the critters. So, uh, have fun out there for sure. So everybody, we'll get the message out on that. And uh, while you're at it, before you get there, make sure you pick up the latest in the uh, Meg Lanslow mystery series, Birder She Wrote, and the Christmas, upcoming Christmas one, Let It Crow, Let It Crow, Let It Crow. Oh, boy. You couldn't tell I was a music major for a while in college. Good thing I didn't finish with that degree. <laughs> so, Donna, congratulations on everything once again, and um, we'll look forward to chatting with you a little bit down the road. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, we're coming to end the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the uh, producers and sponsors for making the show possible. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, or want to find some great animal-related uh, entertainment, go to PetLifeRadio.com. You can drop us a line. Uh, we'll be glad to answer your questions, entertain your comments, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. And uh, while you're at it, check out all the other wonderful shows and hosts. It's a cornucopia of wonderful, wonderful entertainment. That's PetLifeRadio.com. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. And who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.